Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Jan Owen is a remarkable Australian. She's the former CEO of the Foundation for Young Australians. She was named one of Australia's true leaders in 2018 and was the inaugural Australian Financial Review and Westpac Woman of Influence in 2012. All of this is around her relentless commitment to unleashing the talent of young people driving social innovation and entrepreneurship and leading change in education. She has honorary doctorates from the University of Sydney and Murdoch University, and she's a member of the Order of Australia. We are absolutely delighted to be talking to the author of The Future Chasers, Jan Owen. Let's go. Well, welcome, Jan, and thank you very much for being here. And Phil, it's good to be with you as well. It's good to be physically distanced, Adriano. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're, we're practicing social responsibility by doing that. Jan, we're going to launch straight into the very first question, and, that, and that's a pretty simple, uh, straightforward one that we've been asking every single one of the game changers that we've been in dialogue with, and that is, tell us a little bit about your story, how you got to where you are today. Um, hi, guys. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, and it feels very strange but appropriate to be um, on a distance call, but talking about actually the most revolutionary time potentially that we will yeah. live through in our lifetime. So it feels like what happened in the past, um, we may or may not have learnt from, and I guess that is all the same for all of us as individuals as well as collectively. I guess that my past as a kind of a um, maverick kind of child entrepreneur, um, a person who is a was a serial, and I mean serial, school failure, uh, expelled several times, um, dropped out of university several times, and kind of made my own way, made up my own adventure in learning. Um, and it feels, for so long, it felt like that was just a kind of a dark chapter of my past that I should never think about, let alone talk about. And yet, here we are today creating exactly the kind of education and learning that I would have loved and actually thrived in, which is the kind of create your own adventure, but now with scaffolding and support and with structural kind of frameworks around it that make it also normal, what was absolutely abnormal in my experience and therefore I was considered this kind of troublesome um, child and teenager because I was a didactic learner. So. Um, you know, I think many paths have led to where I am today, but more about the things that I do today. And certainly in education, I think my experience was an incredible driver. Um, and I guess when you have those experiences, you either leave education and say, I will never, ever darken the doors again, and that was the worst time of my life, or you think about, hang on, there is an opportunity here. And I guess I went with across my lifetime I always believed that education was the kind of level playing field um, and the and even though I was an 
abject failure at it. I understood the privilege of it in a place in a country like Australia. Um, and so I went down the path of, hang on, we can do this better. That sounds absolutely exciting. Jan, your story and is a, a story of adventure in itself. Can you share with our listeners your work around social innovation, entrepreneurship, and bringing adventure in learning into the mainstream for young people? Yeah, well, I guess that uh, one of the areas that I started with was at the um, really difficult end, actually, of kind of young people who are most vulnerable in edu- well, in society, but then therefore in education. And my early work as a younger person was working with children, young people, in a really complex area because you've got a group of young people, in fact, a growing group of young people who are um, really at risk in the system as in society as a whole but also in education Um, and I guess for us at that time we didn't understand how important it was to privilege education for young people who are vulnerable that actually that idea of education could be a path out of a whole range of um, really complex life experiences Um, but over time when we started working with children and young people in care and set up the Create Foundation, which was the first and still the only kind of body for, run for and by children and young people in care in Australia, um, our focus, one of our areas of focus very quickly became education. Um, and the idea that um, if you were being moved from home to home and place to place, your ability to sustain um, an educational story and an educational experience and educational outcomes in any way was going to be severely um, uh, jeopardised by that kind of process. So that kind of focus on stability and therefore ability to access education became really important part of what the Create Foundation was was doing. And so our work there, um, again, led to other work that I went on to do more broadly um, across Australia, which was working with people that were innovating and what we call social entrepreneurs, so people who have a social impact in their kind of entrepreneurial approaches to these kinds of things. And along that way, I met um, incredible people when I went to help um, set up Social Ventures Australia, people who were already, and this is a good long time ago now, which tells you how long we've been in this space, about 20 years in Australia, but people like Viv White who we supported to bring big picture to Australia from the US and people like Russell Kerr who are running very integrated, not actually um, disaggregate, but actually integrated uh, alternative programs inside schools rather than sending children, young people who were having troubles of any kind outside of school to get that support. Um, And so we got to see a lot of things when I was at Social Ventures Australia with new approaches and got to back some of those actually. And I think by the time that I got to the Foundation for Young Australians nine years ago, which, as you said, Phil, I've just um, finished up there in December last year, uh, we kind of went big picture again and and started to look at, well, what's the future for young people? Let's think about next. And that took us into the future of work um, and what skills and capabilities young people would need in the future of work. But, of course, that inevitably... (laughs) we ended up back in education learning because, of course, we discovered that the future of work would be um, shaped 
partly by actually the skills and capabilities that people were bringing through there and the mindset that young people were coming out of um, education, higher school education, higher education. So I guess there's a kind of a real thread through sort of starting to work with really vulnerable young people in the role of education and giving them access to opportunity, um, looking at a whole lot of innovations through um, the kind of entrepreneurs who were bringing new ideas or coming to Australia or bringing to the system new ideas and then thinking about, hang on, why are we doing this? Why does this matter? Um, and what is the environment and the context that we'll be in where education is brought into sharp focus once again? Um, and so that's kind of, I guess, where we're up to. And now, of course, we're thinking about, wow, um, where are we now? And um, what is the culmination of thinking about equity, innovation and the future of work? Um, that takes us into kind of systemic change. And now, of course, that's the work that I'm, I'm now very, very involved in. It's really fascinating uh, listening to you, Jan, talk about this journey that you've been on, but in particular uh, around the next component of, of what's required in support of young people going forward. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about specific research uh, that, that you have undertaken, and even with F FYA and, and other organisations you've been part of, around the future of the world of work? Because I think it's really important that our listeners get a really clear understanding that that whole area is changing so dramatically and that as a result of that shifting so much, we have a, a responsibility to then reimagine learning and schooling to best prepare these young people to thrive in this whole kind of new world environment. But if you could share some of that research, that would be wonderful. Mm. And of course, um, Adriana, you're so right. I mean, there's research about the future of work and um, we've obviously FIA dedicated, you know, a good five years to, um, and seven reports over five years. So very, very consistent um, information, um, aggregation of existing information, but also new research that we undertook using um, big data uh, analytics and to think about and understand what were the skills and capabilities, but what was the environment. So we really tried to understand both the supply and the demand side. So right. what would the future workforce want in terms of skills and capabilities? And they became really clear to us um, around things that we've always talked about, which is what I've always said to educators, <laughs> always, is that you know this, actually, you've always known this, there hasn't necessarily been an environment that has privileged this. But you've always known that collaboration, teamwork, critical thinking, problem solving, creativity, innovation, um, these were always really, really, really important skills and capabilities. I think what happened and what's happened in the last 25 years is that those things have gone from nice-to-haves to absolutely essential core um, elements of the kind of knowledge, skills, dispositions. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest shift. So I kind of banned the term soft skills at FYA about five years ago. Um, these are the new hard skills. Uh, these are the new privileged skills. And that's what we discovered on the demand side. We discovered that actually uh, employers were privileging these skills and capabilities. Um, we saw reports from employers about graduate intakes. For the first time ever, the employers stopped looking at the marks only of 
the grads, they started looking at everything else that they had done. How could they demonstrate through their work experience, through their life experience, and also through their school, that they could, um, that they had some of the tools and capabilities around these new skills that we're talking about. So I think there has been a coming together um, of both what educators always knew, um, mm -hmm. what actually employers are now demanding, and then the bridge between that obviously is, well, how does the system respond to that and how does the system pivot or reorientate itself to what we now know um, is what gets what you know gets measured matters what matters gets measured and so this idea that uh, we need to think about how will we measure these new skills and capabilities or these old new skills and capabilities um, in the existing framework and the existing system has become a really um, strong area of focus I think the other thing that we found out through our research was also that um you know young people themselves have, again, I'm always loath to kind of say there's this old and new and that, you know, young people necessarily are completely different to their parents or their parents' parents. Mm -hmm. What has changed is the context and the tools. That's what's really changed. And so it is absolutely a fact that we have a generation of young people who are digitally um, obviously kind of natives and so they have got a different set of tools and they have a different way of learning and so again you know the ways of learning um, are changing and iterating all the time and this time that we're in right now this second that we're all sitting here social distancing and and watching a pandemic unfold around the planet um, which shows us in ways that we could never, ever, ever have imagined how we are genuinely one planet and one people. Um, that, you know, that those ways of learning that young people already are very adept at is actually where the kind of we've leapt into that space. Um, and thank goodness that they're adept at it because actually the only people really trying to work it out are probably educators, not actually students so this is a flip you know the students yeah. uh, the educators are trying to keep up with students rather Absol than the other way around yeah absolutely absolutely Jan it's it's really interesting looking at your career and hearing you talk there's a really interesting interplay between the notion of mainstream and the notion of other the notion of one size fits all and the notion of personalization but it's it's particularly interesting when you look at that over past present future so there's lots of different timelines going on. You talk about measurement of things. In our research that we've done uh, around the world at Circle, um, in looking at the character and competencies that people need to thrive in, in our world, which is the way we look at that notion of soft skills, because of course they're not soft, they're, they're essential. Um, and we talk about um, measurement. We, we find that well over 70% of people who are designated by their schools as expert educators want to be able to measure character and competency. They don't know how to do it and they lack confidence in it. If I take the specific area of enterprise skills and design thinking, but really enterprise skills, in the past, it seems to me, and your story is perhaps typical of this, that Entrepreneurs are the people who work around systems, not within systems. If we're going to have a system of school, do we need to listen to entrepreneurs first to teach us how to teach it? And, and if so, what does that look like? What does learning in, in entrepreneurship look like? 
So I like to think, Phil, about this fact that we are a really deep and rich ecosystem, actually, in education and learning. Um, and that, therefore, within that ecosystem exists already all these entrepreneurs, but also educators and also community players and, um, you know, translators and students and so and parents and so I think about how do you kind of how do we privilege this ecosystem how do we understand that we have moved from the kind of very much so from the kind of student teacher the supply demand the kind of transactional in a way um, which I think has dominated a lot of the thinking for a long time actually particularly at a kind of system and even the system outward into the world kind of perspective. I think now we have, now we're in a time where we can kind of open up and reveal, but also start to understand and mine the deep and rich ecosystem that we're in. And so, of course, to your point, you know, there are um, a lot of ways that we're going to learn and iterate much, much, much more quickly. I mean, one of the most positive things and there are many 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 negative things but one of the most positive things out of even even this few weeks or months of COVID-19 is actually that we have finally made the leap from this structured standard kind of playbook that we've had about what education should look like and we've we have made the leap to learning and this is something that a lot of us, including both of you, have been talking about for a long time. But actually, we're now what we're watching it unfold in front of us. This idea of learning, not just the fact that we're moving to online learning, but online learning opens up this whole new world of hang on, what does learning now really mean to us? Um, and that is way beyond just education in its current form and in its current structural. Um, framework. So, you know, we have an opportunity once we go to that place, once we go to that new world and start to genuinely embrace and think about learning, there are so many people who have got incredible contributions to that for us. And we have to link and connect and convene and curate that for the, the benefit of learners students young people children and also from what has been this kind of existing school education sector and system but now um, is wide open it's you know the doors have been open the windows have been flung wide um, the gates have been crashed and now the school is genuinely kind of open for business in my view i'm really excited about uh, the possibility of growing out of this pandemic exactly in the ways that you've just described there. My, my only caution is that there have been some schools or, or learning communities that are simply doing schooling online right now as opposed to the learning component. Uh, but I, I feel that what will happen over time is that so many educators will realise that, gee, this person in my class is demonstrating great independence, great autonomy, we can trust in them and we can co-produce the learning and do this together and let them opt into that space. So uh, I am really optimistic as in, in exactly what you've just described. 
I now want to go and shift the conversation just slightly uh, a little bit, Jan, and I want to talk a little bit about that in 2018, the Mitchell Institute explored the use and usefulness of the ATAR. And the report demonstrated the growing disconnect between the role of ATAR plays in schools and universities with only 26% of secondary students of all domestic undergraduate enrolments using an actual ATAR. I think that's a little bit of an indictment then on, on the fact that we keep flogging this, um, this system or structure of, uh, as the panacea with only 26% utilising it to, to get into post-secondary education. Can you tell us what you have learned from your work about how to transform education to better meet the needs and prepare young people for their future? That's a really complex question, <laughs> but is the one that, that we're all really turning our minds to now, isn't it? Because this is yeah. um, without doubt the opportunity um, to do that right now. So I have a very, strong belief that actually the, the kind of learner's journey um, needs to have within it a whole range of options and choices. Mm -hmm. And so to Phil's point before, you know, this is where we turn to innovators and entrepreneurs as well to try and help us work out what all these would look like, how to ensure, and I mean this absolutely as the most profound piece of this which is how to ensure equity so there are um, many people who would say just do away with um, the ATAR bring in say for instance something like a learner profile and let's just get on with it it's actually not that easy or that straightforward number one those young people who have an ability to build out a rich and diverse learner profile and present it like a portfolio of their life um, general, genuinely and generally are going to have more options to networks, to resources, to people, to mentors, to parents who are absolutely engaged and 100% supportive. Um, and that is not the case by any stretch for every young person in this country, let alone in the world. So um, I am, my belief is that these things are much more nuanced than a kind of an either or. Um, yeah. We will, though, and we will get to a place where the, where the ATAR, in whatever form it is, and it may exist for a long time, has a, and it, you've already stated that it has um, less of a status than it would have had previously. Um, but I think my interest is, so what? So it has less of a status, so what? There is still a desire and a need to understand what a young person knows and that they can demonstrate what they know and what they've learned and the application of it. Um, and so there will have to be, in some form or other, there will be a range of options. And maybe we'll see ATAR sitting alongside five or six other things, um, of which will which will have different measures and different lenses on the same reality, which is what does a young person know, how do they know and what can they do with it? Um, and that, by the way, comes back to our measure of success. I've just said those things, what they know, how they know, what they can do with it. That's a measure of success or a set of measures of success. We might decide that there are other measures of success as well. So we've got to kind of work backwards from the end game here, which is how do we understand and articulate and measure success in learning? Um, how does that learning across an entire life get assessed, valued, articulated, demonstrated 
not just through school education but beyond. Um, this is a, and this is again why I think this rich and deep ecosystem is very, very important because we have an opportunity to bring a lot of uh, different thought, thoughts and ideas, including obviously students themselves to the redesign of this, of this um, uh, entire process actually. Jan, I, I think that the people that are agitating for the removal of the ATAR are not at the same time agitating for um, non-academic rigour. They are definitely people who, who believe in the acquisition of skills and knowledge, but they, they probably equally believe in the transition and the application of those skills and knowledge for young people to truly demonstrate how they can be change makers, how they can be uh, uh, social, uh, socially conscious, how they can be kind of entrepreneurial uh, and so on. I know in my own context, being a visual arts teacher, my, my year 12 students every year entered into their university degree with a portfolio because that was a requirement of that type of yeah. entry. And, yeah. and can, I, can I say that, you know, it was wonderful that not only did I measure, was able to measure their achievement, but for me, what was more important was I was able to measure their growth academically and their growth in terms of their character and their growth in terms of their capability skills. To see young people have those kind of aha moments when they get that breakthrough because they've got a fictitious client or a real client that they're working on with their folios um, was, was wonderful to see. And in many ways, it, it, it allowed them to showcase passion. It allowed them to showcase purpose. And it also allowed them to showcase their own power and their own autonomy. And, and for me, uh, that was the most exciting element. But there was no lack of rigour and there was no lack of uh, knowledge or skill that they had to apply because, you know, you need that as the foundation for you to be able to transfer it further. So this is a really important conversation. So wh why is this work important to you that you're currently doing, particularly around the future of young people? Yes, let's come to that. I just want to reiterate what you just said because that is, number one, isn't it crazy that that only belongs in that kind of little niche yeah. <laughs> of education? I mean, it's just, that just says so much about how we don't even have a learning system within the system, mm. <laughs> um, which I think is super challenging because exactly what you've described, and again, I think we always have to be very... Um, we have to have a lot of humility around all of this because we may not, you know, come up with brand new ideas. That, that's not always necessary. What's necessary is how you put the kind of innovations together in a really compelling way and prototype, mm -hmm. knowing what you know and applying what you already know into a kind of a new, a new model. So I just... You know, I understand exactly what you said and I understand exactly that that's what you've been doing and that is the ideal. I mean, that, that would be ideal for every student in every context. So, you know, let's not think that we've got to get a blank sheet of paper out here. Yeah. Let's think and let's every educator think and every system leader think, hang on, what do we know? What do we know that works already in this kind of new world order and how would we um, think about application and think about putting um, some of these things together in a, in a way that actually made sense for now and into the future for every single learner, no matter not their, whatever their context, not just those in visual, visual arts. So I just want to really underline what the example that you gave because it's so powerful. Um, I think 
the work that we're doing now and we are um, in, uh, we've been on a journey for about the last two years, um, kind of inside FYA, thinking about uh, what, what does it look like to um, convene and to uh, activate this kind of ecosystem in Australia? What are the elements of it? Who's interested in the future of education learning? Um, and how indeed might we make this a centrepiece of kind of the Australian um, uh, focus? So as we've seen in other countries, you know, where they have privileged education and the, not just the gaining of education, but privilege as part of the core kind of economic and social strategy of a country, it's made a massive difference. Obviously, Singapore is the huge sort of point outable in that, um, in that context of making a kind of a 50-year plan with education at the centre. Um, that's the kind, you know, we could only ever dream of that kind of long-range view. But I, st I do think that this work now, um, more than ever, uh, is going to come to the fore as we start to think about a very, very rapidly changing world beyond just work. I mean, let's, let's do a little snapshot of kind of where we are today. Um, we expect that out of this COVID-19, there's going to be millions and millions and millions of young people and other people out of work around the world. Um, mm -hmm. our, if, if we actually believed that education was just about getting a job, we would be out of a job <laughs> right mm -hmm. now. But actually, what we, now, what we know and what we've always known is, of course, education is much more than that. Education is about learning not only how to do, but how to be in the mm -hmm. world. Um, and so these opportunities, and it comes right the way back to what you said, Phil, right at the beginning, which is if there was ever a time when there's going to be a need for a kind of an entrepreneurial mindset, and I don't mean, you know, a world of zillions of mini entrepreneurs, but I mean an entrepreneurial mindset and worldview um, or way of thinking, this is the, going to be the time. Um, and we're going to, I hope, uh, encourage our students and our young people and our children to think very differently in relation to their schoolwork, not to go back to a kind of business as usual, um, because the world will not be BAU for a very, very, very long time. And it would be to, um, it, it, it would be to deprive them actually of an incredible opportunity to create and innovate um, in their own lives, in their own learning, in their communities, in their country, um, if we were to try and out of this sort of just stuff them back into the kind of box that they were in <laughs> and say, you know, everybody else is going to get onto it. On, 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 you know, everybody else is going to sort the world, go, go back to as you were. So I think our opportunity is now and what we're working on is how do we um, understand what's going on, but how do we understand this opportunity that we have to kind of leapfrog forward um, from education as we know it to the learning and lifelong learning as we have envisaged it um, and what's the bridge and what are the bridges that we need to build to get there. Um, what I think would have taken us five or ten years but now it it's, could happen in the next couple of years. That's exciting for all of us. Yes, it's going to be very exciting for, for all of us and I think it's going to be really uh, uh, scary. I think our, our risk appetite um, right across our industry is going to have to increase um, and, and our willingness to let go of control is, is going to be really important. Just hearing you and Adriano talk about um, uh, uh, 
uh, teaching art and and skills and the world of studying so on, and entrepreneurship. Just want to give a quick shout out to Tyron Tran, who's done the work um, for the brilliant artwork for Game Changers, um, and he's of course a former student of Adriano's. Um, Jan, if I can, I want to take you to this notion of business as usual, and to a certain extent, Adriano has already pointed out that business as usual in Australian education um, deems that the ATAR tail wags the educational dog. We've only got 26% of entrants coming in using an ATAR and yet we've got a system that's focused on the tail rather than the whole dog. We, we have some thinking at Circle that part of the way of talking about things is to look at the way that they really are. We know that for many students, particularly from the age of 15 onwards, the notion of work and study is, is, is intimately bound up with each other. We, we, we think about uh, that not only do we have ways of measuring character and competency that are coming out of our own research, but ways of mapping that to using digital passports and all sorts of associated tools that you can take with you through your life. The new normal is already there. These tools actually exist at the moment. We just haven't worked out how to get them into systems. I want to take you to a very specific example of business as usual. And it's one that's very personal for me. You've been a champion for young people for decades now. During this time, we've seen a rise in the reporting or acknowledgement or in fact, just a rise in mental health issues amongst Australian youth. We are living in a time where one in four 14 to 19 year olds meets the crisis for a serious uh, diagnosable mental health condition at some point over that five years. That says that mental health issues are not peripheral, they are mainstream. They are the reality, they are business as usual. From your experience, how can resilience and mental health be further built into our educational systems so we're, so we're not in prison new clothes, so that we're actually dealing with the reality of young people's lives? This is something that has um, and continues to exercise the minds of many, 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 many people. Um, at FYA, there is a social enterprise that, that we set up called YLAB, which is run for and by young people, so it employs young people to do all kinds of work around everything from kind of system change to, um, how, to helping people work out how to consult with young people, um, to co-design ideas and products and services with young people. And um, it's been very interesting. They've been working with Origin uh, youth health recently um, on sort of new ways of thinking about um, mental health. And one of the things that I've always found so uh, interesting in all of this when you talk to young people um, is just the obviousness of, number one, um, kind of why when we live in the kind of world that we live in, uh, and they are in a global environment which is globally connected and have a steady stream of stories of lives and experiences but also of the planet's anxiety and the planet's um, pain <laughs> pouring through their machines and mobile phones and every, every device that you could imagine and they're talking to each other about it. Um, you know, when you think about it like that, we are all probably 
experiencing some kind of existential anxiety all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that as you get older, you get better. So, and I say that in inverted commas of covering it up, which doesn't serve anybody, as we've now found. Um, but actually, when you're younger, it's actually you're more likely to express and to share. And, to, and when you're two, you cry really loudly and four you cry really loudly about it Um, and as you get older your responses change Um, but I think I I always want to acknowledge that to me it seems completely sensible and reasonable actually that there is the level of mental um, health and ill health issues in the world and it is in the world at the moment Um, but also I think And I have come to believe that resilience actually is a really challenging word because resilience, although this might not be the dictionary definition, resilience, when we say it to people, often means things like, or people often hear things like bounce back, get Mm. back on the horse, get back on the bike, you know, all these things. Whereas, um, I believe the word that we should always have been using is actually resourcefulness. So do you have the resources that you need to regroup or to get support around you or to get a break or to think about things differently? And resourcefulness then becomes also um, an action. And as we know, all the research about mental health says you know, if you, there are ways that you can do things which actually increase your mental well-being. Um, and so I think about resourcefulness as kind of collecting. Have you got the collection of tools and people and resources around you that you need to deal with all the what are sometimes bumps and sometimes are huge mountainous challenges um, in your life? And so I've I think that there are some really important and, you know, look at this word social distancing. It just shows how words have deep meaning. Social distancing, which, of course, was the wrong word, but was a hashtag in one second. It should have been physical distancing and but stay socially connected. Um, But social distancing has put two words together that actually shouldn't belong together. And it's a made up thing. And the same with that idea of resilience has been taken to another place, which I don't think it should be. And so I think our use of words and language is very, very, very important. And you could say the same. Some people would say the same about mental health versus mental well-being. Mental health uh, takes us down a path of kind of pathology and well-being takes us into a path (laughs) of wellness and looking for ways to be well and there are you know lots of ways the last thing i would say about it is that the kind of rise of the individual in the last 25 or 30 years the kind of centeredness on i rather than we and us um the 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 atomization of the individual and even of the family you know two parents two children kind of um, structure or notion, which actually also is is kind of discombobulating because everyone knows that that's not true, but actually we're told that you, the individual, you know, you, the tiny family unit, you're the most important thing in the world. 
um, these things are discombobulating for people and particularly for children and young people because they're patently not true. And so, of course, you then end up with these very, very mixed messages. Um, so I think we have a lot to unpack and to understand that actually takes it away from your mental health, for instance, is your own problem that you need to deal with and to understand that this is a much bigger societal and collective issue that we have. Um, and if, without, if we deal with it that way, our young people and children will get better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I, I'm really glad that you brought up that word resilience because um, before I touch on that, actually in the last couple of days that the World Health Organization have come out and said that the, the term social distancing is incorrect and that, that we should be using physical distancing and, and, and all their literature since they made that announcement only refers to it as physical distancing. So uh, I think they're listening to you, Jan, which is a positive. But, but if I get to <laughs> I the word... I it's too late. <laughs> it may be, because the hashtag, once it catches fire, it catches fire. Yeah. But it's interesting around that word resilience when it comes to issues of um, mental health, particularly for young people. It, it's an important word that I know <clears throat> in schools that we have used for a very, very long time. But for me, it can also conjure up, I'm simply tolerating something as opposed to thriving. And I love the fact that you've reframed that whole conversation around the word uh, resourcefulness, uh, which I think is, is really exciting. And, and I've always used the word, you know, to help give them the opportunity to thrive or flourish, which, which is of course a whole range of other things. The other thing I'll add to before I move on to my next question is, you know, there are many schools that do this really well. And, and have made a real commitment to the mental and physical health of the young people in their care. And I just want to send a, a shout out to all those schools that work exceptionally hard and teachers who work exceptionally hard to understand the psychology of the young people in, in their care because at the end of the day, it's about relationships and every human matters. And, uh, and I know that my colleagues um, understand that and believe that they probably just wish they had more resources to be able to better support the young people. What is it that you've tried in your work, Jan, that, that you would never try again? <laughs> what a great question. Oh, my God. Uh, what have I tried in my work that I'll never try again? This is like those, those fashion questions, aren't they? What's the, what's the picture that you've torn up that you'll never show again like having a perm in 1986 or something or <laughs> yes. massive shoulder pads i'm talking about all the female things here massive shoulder pads in 1989 where you could hardly get through the door except sideways no, don't discriminate jan i'm sure there were some men over their time that wore some shoulder pads <laughs> and I, I think i think that was also the era of of the uh, of the mullet as well too so you know. True, true. You're not getting off that scot-free. You're right. That exactly. mullet, was it? It could have been worse than the perm. I don't know. Yeah. Good competition. Um, what are the things that I've tried? I don't know. I mean, I've had, I mean, I've had, so, I've had a lot of failures um, in my life, which I think is kind of half of the course with any kind of entrepreneurial kind of endeavour um, and kind of person. Um, and it seems that the ability to uh, look that failure kind of in the face and move on is um, probably the, you know, a very strange and could be a compelling reason why you shouldn't move on, that this sort of raw energy and kind of 
you know, kind of focus on I'm just going to keep going anyway could actually be the downfall of every entrepreneur. Um, but I think some things that I probably would do differently now are um, I think we have a very strange view about kind of experts, actually. I think that's one area that I've really come to change my view about. Um, and I think I always had a different view because I've always worked with young people and I've always believed that, you know, young people are experts in their own lives. Um, but it goes broader than that. I think the whole work that we've done over the last 10 years or so on kind of co-design and bringing people with the lived experience into the centre of design thinking um, has changed everything. And I think I'm not the only person that has kind of learnt from that, of course, but it's such a massive learning because I was always such an advocate for young people and always wanted young people to have a platform and always ensured that they had that platform. And But that platform used to kind of have a a ceiling in a way you know yes we want to hear your views and now thank you for we've consulted you we did the survey and now mm. the experts are going to go off and do the work and that's all changed in the last 10 years where we said no 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 stay in the room and co-design and co-create with us um, and that's been the most exciting shift I think uh, professionally that I've seen that's why we set up YLAB at so at um, Foundation for Young Australians, so that we are actually privileging and also putting a structure and scaffolding around that exact model, which is you don't need to leave the room after we've heard your experience or your knowledge or your learning, stay, co-create, co-design. And um, I, think we're at the, I think we're at the kind of front end of that, um, but I think that they're still after 10 years, but I think there is so much so much richness in that that we're going to bring into uh, education and learning and I'm really hoping the work that I'm involved in now sort of post FYA uh, which we'll be launching in the next month or so will really showcase that in a very 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 real and tangible way. So Jan do you want to share a little bit of what you're planning to do with your next challenge? So the next chapter is um, something that we've been working on for the last two years. It's a venture or a project, I guess, initiative called Learning Creates Australia. And um, what our kind of mission is, is to think about how we build out this very, very deep and rich ecosystem of people involved in learning and the future of learning uh, currently, but also, um, so not just educators, but also industry, and uh, innovators and entrepreneurs um, and higher education uh, with the express purpose of charting and kind of navigating this kind of future of work but also future of society. We really are going to centre and privilege young people in this as co-designers and co-creators um, and our first project is called the learner's journey or learning pathways and it's going to focus on something that we've been talking about a lot today and that um, Adriano touched on with his kind of um, discussion about the ATAR about how will we uh, understand, privilege, assess and articulate what success looks like for students now and into the future and what are the tools and mechanisms that the Australian learning system will need to utilise. Um, we've got two years of substantial support and resourcing from the Paul Ramsey Foundation, PricewaterhouseCoopers, um, Melbourne University are a very key partner and 
the Foundation for Young Australians is is the kind of host um, or kind of uh, auspice of this project. But it will involve many, many, many people in many systems and across education in Australia, we're hoping over the next two years. Um, so super exciting to be stepping into the challenge of all the things that we've been talking about here, but uh, the things that everyone's been talking about is that what will this new landscape look like for students now and you know over the next few years? Oh, Jan, that just sounds so exciting. It's, uh, it's, there's, there's so much richness in that piece there. Um, uh, certainly, certainly it, it, it would uh, tickle the taste buds of uh, your two hosts today. You're part of that journey too, <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, you, in so many ways, Jan Owen, you model the graduate outcomes, the competencies that we talk about um, uh, in our work. We, we, we talk about a good person. We talk about a future builder, a continuous learner and unlearner, a solution architect, a responsible citizen, and a team creator. This conversation today has gone across all of those areas. You embody that in your living. You attend to that in your work. You inspire so many. You've, you, 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 you are an absolute game changer. It's been a privilege and a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for the opportunity and good luck with the brilliant series. We need it. And, uh, yeah, congratulations, guys. I think, uh, Jan, you've given us the title of, the, of this episode, Learning Builds Australia. I think that's a phenomenal way to kind of finish up. And, and just to echo what, what Phil has just said there, uh, you know, I, I've been following not only your work but the work of the organisations that you have led for quite some time now and they have inspired me to do schooling differently. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you so much for providing an example of what agility and adaptability could look like in, in, a, in a school context, in a learning context, uh, what good citizenship looks like and what responsible citizenship looks like. So. Jan, uh, it's been an absolute privilege and pleasure and I'm going to stop fangirling you now and we're going to finish up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Adrianic. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.